I just got done talking to my London son. Oh, yeah? How is he? He has to restart his battle against the pigeons who want their balcony there in the fly. Oh, no. (laughs) We were speculating that a pigeon lawyer may show up Mm. at their balcony door. A a pigeon carrying a briefcase, uh, Uh making a case that he abandoned the balcony for several months and that it now belongs to the pigeons. I think Jonathan does not have a leg to stand on I know, legally or little, ethically here. A little tentative. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, you should just be lucky that the pigeons aren't taking over the entire apartment. Right. Yeah, they could be. Hello and welcome to good-looking people in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with Brianna. Greetings. And as always, we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hello. And by our friend, Vinny. Oh. So it wasn't a long chunk that we just read, but suddenly we have, like, a lot of things to talk about. There's oh. a lot of gaps being filled and, Yes, and like, so much backstory. scary stuff. And... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, before we even talk about what we were, what we read, I had a thought that I was just kind of mulling, and that was mm. in the last chunk. Uh, we had Hal watching his dad's old films, right? And yeah. I keep asking, why does he do that? But then I, w- I was just wondering about Hal's relationship with his dad, because mm. so he's really into watching these films, but. He was never involved with filmmaking, which was the big passion of his father's life in the last, you know, the last years of his father's life. And so you have Oren, who, while he wasn't part of the filmmaking per se, he accompanied his dad and Joelle on all these, I guess they were shooting movies or they were out. I don't know. I can't remember why they were all out together. But even if his father was more interested in the relationship he had with Joel, Oren was there too. And he had, he spent time with his dad, you know, drinking together, going out to places together. And then Mm -hmm. you have Mario, who was very involved with their father all the time and a partner sort of in the filmmaking. And then you have Hal. It just occurred to me that I wondered, did they spend time together? Hal and well, James O. Uh, I really? don't know. I like, mean, there's together, the whole thing together. with, like, James O. seemed to think that Hal couldn't or didn't speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, he seemed to be very concerned about Hal. Or does that just indicate his lack of connection with Hal? That he didn't feel... I think feel, that's what it is. Like That I, he didn't feel yeah. close to Hal. In the way that he felt perhaps close to, closer to Oren and Mario. That's weird to think about. It is mm-hmm. weird to think about. I mean, that anybody would feel close to Oren. <laughs> right. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but right. I suppose but also probably because Joel did at a certain point. At least superficially, the way that Hal was described as a child sounds most like James O as a child. Like that they wore, they had like mm. glasses and a bow tie and, and were very kind of bookish and 
maybe not great at right some of the at, at like athletics or other things that their fathers wanted them to be good at, you know. Mm-hmm. So I wonder whether there's a little I don't know. Like I could imagine that James O wouldn't really know what to do with Hal. Yeah, and I was thinking back to the you know the I ate something story. Uh, when I think when yeah. you think about. Uh, the family and where was everybody? Uh, mm-hmm. Mario was with James O, right? Because they end up peering out the door at the aftermath of Hal coming out and telling Avril that he ate something, right? And she's going nuts out there. Wasn't it true that they mm-hmm. were peering out the door? So Mario was with James O, and Oren was with Avril out working on the garden, and little. Little Hal was apparently just, just yeah, you know, just in the basement alone. In the basement yeah. alone. So anyway, it was just a. I don't know what it means or if it means anything, but it was just a question I had about. Yeah, I haven't really thought about that before. Maybe that's why Hal watches his father's movies so much because he feels like not even necessarily a way to way feel to close to him, him, but like yeah, like it's a way him. to access him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I can anyway, see that. Onward and upward. Or onward and downward. Onward oh, and yeah. downward. So we start out here with back with Lens, which I thought we were done with him after he got I kicked know. out of the house. I was so happy because I thought we were done with him too. And now, nope, here he is. And right he just back. finds ways of getting more and more hateable, which I didn't think was even possible at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we I have do... this little thing, right? Him following these women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really resolve, does it, in this, where we were reading? N- not I in this remember. chunk. It not does eventually, but yeah. not here. Okay. He's wearing... Oh, he's got that... Such a wild... Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so the thing he's wearing, he Lens wore fluorescent yellow snow pants, the slightly shiny coat to a long-tailed tux, a sombrero with with little wooden balls hanging off the brim, oversized tortoiseshell glasses that darkened automatically in response to bright light, and a glossy black mustache promoted from the upper lip of a mannequin. And he's wearing these things uh, so as to maintain a low profile, it, right, it seems to suggest. Right, they call it hiding in plain sight. His yeah, theory that's about, his plan. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me a lot of Pemulus and his jester costume situation. Yeah, but when Pe- Pemulus and... wasn't trying to remain unseen. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose. He was definitely doing it for effect. But the yeah. the, the end result is much the same. Mm. They both look a lot the same. They both look yeah. fairly ridiculous. Yes. I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting, too. I think when it starts out, it talks about how uh, Randy Lentz, that he, his legs felt like they ended at his knees. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the wheelchair assassins, right? Heart-pressed. Yeah. It talks about being heart-pressed. Yeah, he's heart-pressed. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, and he just has a whole whole real racist inner monologue about oh, it's uh, Asian women. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's terrible, for terribly racism. derogatory. And he's also Randy Lentz is incredibly paranoid, of course. And mm-hmm. I, maybe paranoia is not exactly the word. He should be worried, right? He should, he be. should be worried. He's just not worried about the <clears throat> right people. I think he, right. He mm-hmm. he talks about uh, that he's. Followed by people who are in front of that, you have to watch out for the people who are following you in front of you with mirrors yes. on their glasses. Yeah, mirrors on their the glasses yeah. or elaborate systems of cellular communications for reporting to the command center. Yes. Mm-hmm. Another disgusting thing about him is that he feels like 
He's the victim in his dismissal from Ennett House. Like, oh, he yeah. talks mm. like, he, oh, I was doing so well. he tried in good faith and, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but he of was course, on the like, straight on narrow. Yes, of course. But that's, like, that's Lens. That's, there's so many people like this who are, who are always the hero of their own narrative and will never learn anything from their mistakes because they couldn't possibly make a mistake. Right. Mm-hmm. Which I think is ultimately... The reason that I hate, like, there's a lot of reasons to hate Lens, but the reason that I find him, like, so exasperating uh, is, is that, that he, he will never learn anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, ultimately, ultimately something is going to happen that's going to kill him. And his last thought will be, this wasn't my fault. Right. Mm -hmm. He is funny too. He's so we were talking about his weird get up, right? And the hiding in right. plain sight. And it talks about how people go out of their way to avoid walking close to him. Right. And it says somewhere that that he tended to confuse a wide berth with invisibility. Like he right. thinks he thinks that mm-hmm. no one comes up to him and interacts with him because they can't, like it's like he's invisible practically. But the truth is that they're kind of, you know, they, they, they know he's and there think, oh, and they're avoiding him. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He bumps into somebody. This is the guy who's like shooting a, an arrow on a suction cup at a wall. Right. Uh, he bump, yeah. bumps into this guy and they both look at each other and shake their heads like, look at this poor son of an urban bitch I'm on the same street with. Yeah. <laughs> they describe somebody who's, a, I don't know if it's that guy or if it's another person that avoids him by performing a Veronica. Which I that I think is later. I think that's with poor oh, Tony. Okay. okay. Yeah. Oh. But I do want to hear. Right. I oh, was okay. going to look it up right. and then I forgot to. Right. So when we that. get to it, I so, want to hear. Great. So uh, Lentz, though is the guy, is the one that has the book with the that he keeps these drugs in, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The it's a medical dictionary, isn't it? And, well, I looked it up. I tried. I decided to look it up, and so I have a little bit about that. I think it's oh. James' oh. Principles of the Gifford Lectures. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I, I looked up, I don't know if any such a th- book exists, but the Gifford Lectures are an annual series of lectures that were started in 1887, and they're in Scotland. And their, um, their, their theme is theology and philosophy and the relationship between religion and science, interestingly. Oh, hmm. Interesting. And the, there was, like, religion in an age of science was one of the lectures in between 1989 and 91. And the James principles uh, refer to William James and his principles of psychology. He had four principles of psychology, the stream of thought, like stream of consciousness and uh, consciousness of self, emotion, and will. So interesting mm-hmm. that that is the book that he carries his drugs around in. I thought that is interesting. Yeah. I have a couple other little things here in this section. I have uh, a definition it says uh, both advantage and disadvantage of nasal cocaine is that eating becomes otios and optional. Yeah. Uh, so otios is an adjective meaning serving no practical purpose or result. Isn't it odious? No, no, O T I O S. I mean, unless the narrator means odious, like reprehensible, or yeah. I mean, they're Mm. similar. It could be either. Yeah, they both fit. Yeah. Really. What else do I have here? Oh, so I looked into this. It talks about a few different ways in which uh, Lens is currently impaired, and his he's he's planning on stealing the shopping bags of these women. 
uh, and and some of the some of the ways in which that's going to be difficult. So one is they say it was hard to walk stealthily when one couldn't feel one's feet. Um, right. <laughs> that's a problem. Uh, I'd imagine also a problem with running. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, so it talks about how he's wearing these glasses with lenses that darken when you're in the light, like uh, transitions right. lenses. Right. Uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. how when when you when you walk out of a light and into the dark, it takes him a, a little while to adjust. Like, so I think it says he's under a street lamp and it darkens the lenses, and then he walks into the shadows and he can't see anything. That's um, hilarious. It's so good. So mm-hmm. I looked into this because I thought that maybe those would have been very high tech and new at the time in like right. the early to mid nineties that this was written. So when were um, they? I was way off. They were invented in the the early sixties. Huh. They use silver halides, so it's a, a, a similar chemical compound to the way that black and white film works. Um, yeah. they're, they're they're activated and become opaque when light hits them, huh. uh, and they are indeed slow to respond to changes in lighting. Uh, and and recently they were blamed for a boat accident in two thousand seven, uh, wow. because because they couldn't transmit enough light to be useful to a ferry lookout or a tugboat lookout or something. Oh. I'm not. I don't remember exactly. Whoops. So they would have been widely used by the seventies. If they were developed in the 60s, they yeah, would have been... I believe so. I suspect that they might have been more expensive in the 70s. Uh, I do than, seem to remember friends 90s, that but... had those, like when I was in college, mm-hmm. which was a long time ago. They're tricky to use on like eyeglass lenses because they need to be in a uniform layer. So you can't include them in like the, the glass substrate. You have to coat them on I the, think I knew either that. the front or the back of the lens. Hmm. Let us just say that it is remarkable how totally unsympathetic a character Randy Lentz is. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. just nothing. Kind of an achievement. It is. Because, you know, he has had bad things happen to him, obviously, to get into his the situation where he currently is. But it's like none of that makes me sympathetic toward him at this point. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, as you say, finding new ways, new reasons to hate him dislike him intensely so yeah we've got this kind it's like setting us up for something that's gonna happen uh, and then we cut away from it and we get this little blurb about the afr yeah that the the wheelchair assassins are still in antitwa entertainment and they're still they're looking through all of the cartridges and it kind of explains that they're researching the incandenses to find the original entertainment because they haven't been able to find a master on their own um, yeah. But just out of thoroughness, they're also looking at the cartridges that the Antitois have. Yeah. And uh, when were the Antitois brothers killed? What day? Was that on oh. the 11th? Mm-hmm. Let's see if it's Seems in like our... It is not. The okay. I, can, I can find that out. Well, okay. So here, this is a problem for my understanding of the timeline of the book. The most recent heading before the scene in which the Antitois brothers are killed uh, is May 1st uh, in Tucson. Oh. Mm. Yeah. The uh, section with going through the Antitois brothers' shop also mentions Marat. Right. So he has to be there. Well, that makes sense because April 30th to May 1st is... When he's on the ledge. Right. So he gets off the ledge and then goes. 
Oh. Okay. But that would have now, been see, six I'd... months. That would have been over six months that the Antitois brothers have been wrapped in plastic and sitting in there. I can't imagine what? that it would take the AFR. If we're Wait, in November I'm sorry. now. I mean, they do refer to the Antitois brothers swelling. That... Yeah, but that would happen yeah. in a matter of days or weeks. I can't. I mean, maybe our understanding of how the headings work are wrong or is wrong. It it gives me some cause for dismay, (laughs) I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Should we move on to poor Tony here? We should, yeah. Um, Real quick, uh, the section with Lens was anxiety-inducing in a number of ways, but mostly because it also clarified that Lens is also in Little Lisbon with poor Tony and with Pemulus's brother. Which, Ooh, well, I didn't think about that. They're yeah. all in the same general area. And if Criminal Minds has taught me anything, killing animals is just the beginning to right. possibly killing humans. Oh, yeah. Well, that was, yeah, that it, was my right. first thought at, at, at this scene where he's following these women before mm-hmm. it explained to me explicitly that he was going to steal their stuff, I really thought he was planning on killing one or both of them. Because oh, yeah. it also mentions oh, no. that this is around the same time of night that he would usually be going around and killing animals. Right. Oh, right. right. So now we're with poor Tony, uh, mm-hmm. who, is, who is still mid-chase from stealing... Kate Gompert's Kate Gompert and, 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 and Ruth um, Van Cleve. Oh, yeah. Ruth Van Cleve's purse, yeah. So Ruth is still mm-hmm. hot on his heels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found it I found it remarkable that poor Tony, after all he's been through, can run able so to fast run. so far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. In high heels. Kicks in. Yeah, in, in high yeah. heels. Yeah. Well, yeah. as it says, they're both in high heels, so they're both kind of similarly handicapped in that way. Although um, it explain, I think they, it explains that it's not really a handicap. You just have to know how to do it. You have to stay on the front of your foot and lean forward, lean into your yes. run. <laughs> yes. Um, and and so Ruth is shouting for help, and then poor Tony also starts shouting for help to confuse onlookers. Right. Mm-hmm. They're running. She's getting very close. She's like grabbing. She gets his hat. She gets his boa. And ominously, Portoni is heading for the Antitois shop. Right. Yes. Yes. Yep. And is close. And, and he's very close. Yeah. Like and not the for the front behind. door either. He's headed for the back yeah. door off the alley. Right. right. Do we know why and he's going there? I think he that's where to... he senses his stuff. Right? He fences his stuff, but also remember that poor Tony and some of the other people that he hung out with sometimes uh, worked for the Antitois doing the, like, they would, like, hang the Quebec flag on the statue and stuff oh, like the, that. They, he were, was they part were, like, of the, members of the resistance. Was he part of the, like, Thomas Crown Affair-ish thing? Yeah, Is that's that right. Tony? Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so he saw them as potentially somebody that would feel sorry for him, basically, yeah. and help yeah. him. Mm. He doesn't have many people to turn to, and he sees them as a friend, as friendly figures. So you said you looked up what a Veronica was. Yeah, if you perform a performing a Veronica is a bullfighting move. Oh, it's hmm. when you stand when the bullfighter stands with both hands beside, like at their sides, just stands mm-hmm. with hands at their sides, and the bull charges, and they do like a three hundred and sixty degree turn. So hmm. they're oh. They spin out of the way, but end up facing the same direction that they were. Oh, it looks quite huh. elegant. 
when done by mm-hmm. a bullfighter. <laughs> right. And it made sense because it was somebody like spinning out of the way of this mad dash down the sidewalk, right? right? Yes. A man so in a car coat sense. made a smell face and did a kind of artful Veronica to let the two of them career uh-huh. past. Right. Also, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I don't I don't really want to hate poor Tony, but he does keep referring to Ruth as the thing. I know. Yeah, I hate yeah. that. Ooh, it's so mm-hmm. ugly. Which yeah. is like, well, he actually refers to her and Kate both as things. Like, he stole the purses from those things. Yeah, the um, things or the creature as well. Yeah, yeah just real, none of that um, language. is yeah. great. He just he says that so I, that he doesn't feel bad about stealing stuff from them. Probably right. I think that's it. And he's so completely like out of his mind at this point that he, I think he kind of just assumes that there are no other people in the like he's the person and then everyone else's things. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, he's he's very close to Antitois Entertainment when we cut away from him uh, back to this more narration about like what the AFR is up to right now. Mm-hmm. Right. We kind of learn how they came to know the things that they know right now about the entertainment. Uh, that they traced a... They, they found a sart, the sartorially eccentric craniofacial pain specialist. I'm not sure if we know who yeah, that who, is. I wondered, too. Do we, we? I felt like we should know who that was referring to. Right. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they, they found that person by torturing Trent Kite. Trent Kite. Poor Trent Kite. Whose and electrical surge tolerance proved considerably lower than that of his room's computer's machinery. Ugh. Ugh. Yikes. The wheelchair assassins are, are revealing themselves to be really, really, really scary violent. Yeah, just mm-hmm. totally cold-blooded. Right. How did they find Trent Kite? Because neither well, he nor Gateway they, they were say that he, arrested. They, they, they tracked him because he... He pawned, he pawned the stuff. espresso machine that he oh, stole from oh, okay. <laughs> from uh, okay. uh, what's his name? Duplessis. Uh, Duplessis. So they tracked him down, and they they grilled him about the cartridges, right? The cartridges yeah. that he would have mm-hmm. also pawned, I guess. Yes. Is that the point? That I think that was where he, he was the guy in the weird dis, the weird wig with the like hippie disguise at the Antitois. I think that must have been Trent Kite. But didn't that mm. guy oh. give them the drugs, the Madame Psychosis? Oh. Yeah, I think you're. Why right. would he have any interaction with the Antitois? Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, except that the Antitois would be a store around the area that would buy stolen goods. But aren't oh, they a well, joke I thought, shop? I Among other that, things. Yeah. I thought, though, I assumed that they had interrogated Trent Kite before they ever came to the Antitois uh, yes. joke shop, right? Yeah, because Trent Kite pointed them to the Antitois. So not... Or wait, no, no, so no. The, the, other the, guy was the craniofacial there. pain specialist pointed them there. And so the the craniofacial pain specialist is the one that Trent Lott gave up. Yes? Trent Trent Kite, Trent, Trent, Kite, Lott, I mean, Trent Lott was Lott a, the senator. attorney general. Yeah. Attorney general, mm-hmm. thank you. So Trent Kite gave that guy's name. So who the heck is he? 
I don't, yeah, it's like this hole in, I mean, unless I'm totally forgetting something that we've read. I feel like I'm totally forgetting yeah. something. Um, we've read so much that it I could happen. I thinking, no, because um, it was Duplessis that Ian Gately killed, right? Yes. 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 Yeah. Who was okay. a lawyer for the, for right. the FLQ? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Can you remind me what the FLQ is? They're like the the Front de Liberation de Quebec. Okay. Um, they're the ones that the Antitois were involved with, and who ah, the yes. okay. the, uh, the AFR kind of sneer at for not for being sort of ineffectual. Could I just maybe this is the spot for me to interject? And perhaps we knew this, but did we? Did you know that the 16th Premier of the Province of Quebec was Maurice Duplessis? Oh, really? 1944 oh, to 1959. No. Uh, and one of, the, one of the bad things that is connected with his, his time in office is this referen- a reference to the Duplessis orphans, uh, which was mm. uh, 20,000 children were wrongly certified as mentally ill by the provincial government of Quebec and confined to psychiatric institutions in the 40s. And they did this in order to misappropriate additional subsidies from the federal government. Yikes. Bad stuff. That's horrifying. Mm -hmm. Just interesting to connect that to to R. Duplessis's name. Yeah. I have a translation, which I'm not sure is correct from Google Translate, but that's for uh, Koftama. Oh, yeah. Um, as in, yeah, on 722, um, then discarded one of the huge metal koftama of the alley outside the shop's rear dro- door. So I'm having it translated as cluster chest. Huh. Which Cough. doesn't Weird. make a lot of sense. Unless it's, is it something involved with the waste disposal services? Maybe. Like, is it, is it dumpster? Is it, is it Quebecois for dumpster? It could be Quebecois for dumpster, yeah. Like, kind of calling them a huge chest of drawers, almost? I, yeah, I, maybe? I'm not or sure. Or like a multi-compartment dumpster situation? Right, could be. yeah. They also have a sign hanging in the window that says closed in English and French and clothes in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. And so they're like, they have people working in shifts to watch through all the cartridges. Yeah. We also learn Mm -hmm. they have two different plans for finding the master cartridge, right? They have the, and right now they're, they're trying the direct, the direct route uh, of actually searching, physically searching. And that's why they're there. And if that doesn't work, then they'll go the indirect route, which is the, Horribly like, scary, uh, surveilling and infiltrating uh, the actress and performer and relatives of James O. Right. And mm, potentially yeah. subjecting them to the technical interviews that they do. Yes. Yeah. I wondered, so in this direct approach, so they're, they're searching in the joke shop. I wondered if they'd been down in the ETA tunnels. Probably not. They probably don't have access. Just wondered, yet. you know, because of the box that was spilled open with the cartridges. Mm-hmm. In, in I the would imagine they there. would be very interested in that. We also learned that the AFR didn't put up those cardboard 
street displays with the cartridges in them. That was the FLQ. The cartridges with the stamped smiling face and right. il ne faut plus qu'on poursuive le bonheur. Uh, you no longer th- have to pursue happiness. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Was I right? Um, I was right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. were, were you going to mm-hmm. translate? I feel like oh, I well, The translation those. that I looked up says it is no longer necessary to pursue oh, happiness. Oh, yeah. That would be the yeah. il faut part. Yeah, that I missed. Mm-hmm. And so again, we we are. It says that those cartridges are blank; that there's just nothing on them. Um, okay. And I w- I wondered whether I thought maybe it was unclear whether Fortier and Marat knew that you need a different RPM player to play a master cartridge, and maybe they would appear blank unless you use that player. But it sounds like they do, in fact, know that because they're looking for any cartridge of the entertainment, but most specifically they're looking for a master cartridge that they can make copies from. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So um, and when al- you said- I think also it says, it might also mention that the master cartridges are a physically slightly larger than the, the regular cartridges. So it would, it would be difficult to make that mistake. Mm. Fortier's uh, narration says like, even the Antitois brothers would be able to recognize a master on site. Um, and if they had had a master, they would have played it with a master player, and they wouldn't have been around by the time the AFR got to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was also an endnote that talked again about those mas- the whole master cartridge thing, interlaces yeah. reason for the master cartridge. And I think you had mentioned, or somebody had mentioned a while back, that uh, it seemed like it would be impossible to make a cartridge that absolutely couldn't be reproduced. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, but the, 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 so this kind of explains that it's just you. So that you, they said you you can get around it, the the no copy thing, but it's really really hard. So so your average yeah, person but, couldn't do it. Right, but you only have to do it once. This is the thing right. I don't understand about about this. Like it's it's written as though it's just impossible to get anything off of a mass to get anything from one non-master cartridge to another master cartridge. But I I, I still do not buy that. You know that uh, the way uh, you could actually pirate records in the seventies, like you could take an LP and pirate what? it. Yeah, you uh, and there were there were people that did this. I think primarily in like Iran. Uh, this was this was big business where you'd take American mm. records and you'd coat them in silicone to make a, a mold mm. and peel it off. And then you just pour in new liquid vinyl and let it set up and you'd have a playable record that sounded pretty OK. So mm. I don't know. The way that copy protection works, in, at least digitally, is through encoding. Like you, you create a code to, to make something unreadable except under certain circumstances. But... You also have to be able to decode it or no one will ever be able to watch it. So I, I can't accept that a, a regular <laughs> TP cartridge is completely uncopyable. Because there are plenty of people out there in the world like you who would see the uncopyable cartridge well, as and a, also just a like challenge the, worth the, focusing the AFR, on. The AFR has a lot of resource. They have a lot of money right. and power at their disposal. They could figure this out. And you'd only have to do it once. Like the hard part is getting it from one of these regular cartridges back onto a master. And then you could make as many copies as you want easily the way it's, the system is supposed to work. So yeah, that eats at me whenever they talk about this stuff. I'm confused too. So you said that 
so they were they had the quote volunteers. The volunteers. Well, they, they did seem I to guess actually they did be volunteers. volunteers. Yeah, I guess yeah. they did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they were uh, watching the cassettes and watching the the ones from the cardboard displays, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which Fortier and Marat have decided. It said they believed that the displays were a hoax. They thought they were a hoax, just in instilling terror only, right? Mm-hmm. They were like meant to alarm. But the one that they finally found that did contain the the entertainment wasn't that also one with the smiley face on it? Or am I wrong I about was on, that? I I I I, sh- I should go back and look at that again. I was a little unclear on where that one had come from. It says. That, that, that then by the time Fortier was able to return to the dismantled shop, they had located a third cartridge emblazoned with the embossed smile and letters oh. disclaiming need of happy pursuit. And after some regretful losses, they had secured and verified it. The Samistat cartridge of entertainment. Oh, okay. So it so was most one of, of them. So most of them appear blank, but one of them wasn't. Huh. Weirdly. Is it some kind of like Russian roulette thing where the FLQ only had like a very few copies of of this cartridge, but they put out a whole bunch to make people think that they had a lot of copies of it? Mm. Could be. To increase the terror of it all, I suppose. Maybe. So uh, Fortier has to go to... He had to go to the south. He The reason he was gone for a while was because he was needed out in the southwest for an operation out in the southwest. Right. I'm assuming, does that mean that he was the survey taker at Oren's hotel room? That's possible, yeah. Somewhere in here, I forget exactly where, but somewhere in here we get confirmation that the Swiss hand model is indeed Luria P. That might be later in the oh. reading that it mentions that. Is she with the FLQ or is she with the wheelchair assassins group? I think she must be with the wheelchair assassins. So that would mean they were working together yeah. to get information from Oren. There's a brief kind of side like tangent here where Fortier talks about riding on buses. He says, The nation USA treated wheelchaired persons with the solicitude that the weak substitute for respect, as if he were yeah, a sickly was... child. Buses knelt, smooth ramps flanked steps, attendants pushed him aboard flights. So I have, a, I have a thing to say about this, because this rubbed me the wrong way. I feel like mm. I, can, I can see why Fortier thinks this about America, given his perspective. Uh, but the, there's the, he's missing something. He's missing that these accommodations for the disabled don't exist because of some, like, kind, bland institutional largesse from the government that, like, the, the government decided that disabled Americans deserve these things. It's because disabled Americans demanded them and continued to demand them for a long time. The American disabled rights movement. So it gained prominence in the, the 1970s. Uh, and in fact, it, one of one nexus of it was uh, in my home state in Colorado was uh, the mm. origin of the group ADAPT, which started out uh, protesting wheelchair-inaccessible buses in Denver, but then went on to do a lot of public transit and, and like public access protests around the country. They were instrumental in the passing of the ADA in 1990, when Congress was debating the bill 
protesters showed up at the Capitol and without warning, about 60 of them discarded their wheelchairs, crutches, and other mobility aids and crawled up the steps, providing Mm. a highly visible demonstration of how inaccessible architecture affects people with disabilities. Jennifer Keelan, an eight-year-old with cerebral palsy, was the youngest participant. As she was climbing up the steps, she said, I'll take all night if I have to. Wow. And that image is is credited as one of the- 1990 was the oh. ADA. So so not mm. long before this book was written. Uh, and it really was mm. like, it was kind of the most basic legal protection for people with disabilities. It was, it was essentially the Civil Rights Act, but for people who had used mobility aids and stuff. And it, it, the, the fight did not end there. Uh, in 2017, disability rights advocates inside the Capitol were pulled out of their wheelchairs and arrested by Capitol Police. Mm. Right. Um, that has that's come up with the uh, storming of the Capitol building. That those people in wheelchairs were treated more, uh, kind of more roughly by the police right. than the rioters were. Well, and also what we're seeing now is that they're building these enormous walls to keep people away from the Capitol uh, and to prevent protests like the Adapt protests. Right. Um, so I think what Fortier sees as like weakness or belittlement or something, he's missing the context of why it is that way in America. And, and, and that it's the result of like fighting tooth and nail for those things. I agree with you to a certain point. And yet I thought that there's something to that saying that there is a different quality about solicitude as compared to respect solicitude Mm -hmm. implies you need help and I good person that I am will help you right in a way whereas respect is like that you don't see the person as needing of help as much as you see them as like you're a person that needs the lift to get on the bus you use the lift Mm -hmm. as opposed to you need the lift so that you can get on the bus with the same relative ease as someone who doesn't need the lift it's not like instead of like we're helping you i i don't know there's a there's something a little different about it and i'm sure that i think it's the difference between universal design versus adaptive does i guess it is adaptive design right like, ah, we're just going to yeah. slap a board down over this uh, staircase and bam, it's a ramp. Right. That's, that feels like solicitude. Yeah. And Less like, going to put a ramp here because Joe needs a ramp to get into his house instead of, well, we need to make houses but, accessible. Or, or, or also like Oren's, Oren's impulse to like pat the census taker on the head. Right. You know, right. like that oh, feels God. like right. solicitude to me. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. In in reference, I just posted a photo of uh, Jennifer Keelan at the Capitol crawl. They called I'm it. I want to see this. Wow. I'm proud that happened in Colorado. Yeah, and, and it was really a grassroots movement organized from the very beginning by people with disabilities who just felt that their needs weren't being served. Right. But anyway, so one of the reasons that I wanted to bring this up is that this was, I think David Foster Wallace started writing Infinite Jest in 1992. Two years before that, people in wheelchairs could be denied employment because they were, because they needed a wheelchair. Right. So that's like, even now, this is recent history, but particularly at the time that he was writing this book, it was right there. 
And it was a major change in law. Like it, it changed the way that a lot of things were done in the United States. It's shocking, isn't it, how recently some of this happened? Mm-hmm. You're talking about mm-hmm. disabilities, if you're talking about uh, racial, like segregation rules and just a lot of things. It's hard to think that they've happened as recently as they have. Mm-hmm. I'm off my high horse now. We can, we can keep moving. That's a fair okay. point. There certainly is a lot of, there's a lot to stew over about around disability and different ability and people who stray from the typical in this book. I mean, there's right. everywhere we turn, we have people with some kind of unusual physical needs. This was a really heavy chunk these few yeah. pages. Yeah, I'm glad that we didn't read more than this. Yeah, because we also learn sort of the what the strategy or what the what the tactics are here with the involving the entertainment and what the wheelchair assassins group, who's the A, what are they? They're the AFR. The AFR. What yeah. they're trying to accomplish, they really spell out. And if I, I'm not sure I totally understand it, but it's like they want to have the cart, get the cartridges. They want to distribute them widely in the USA and cause massive disaster, basically, that will make the US want to retaliate against those who are responsible. Right. And the AFR thinks that Canada. Instead of fighting Quebec leaving the country and becoming independent, mm-hmm. instead of that, they will force Quebec right. to leave so that they right. alone can face the consequences of the, the fury of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that that's, is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's how I understand it. It's not that they're fighting for, like, an opportunity for Quebec to gain independence. They're fighting for Quebec to have no choice but to be independent, or for nobody to have any choice but to make Quebec independent. Right. So that was helpful to kind of understand their plan. Mm -hmm. We also learn, is that in this section where they talk about Marat a little bit more? Marat and Fortier? Yeah, that, that because uh, Fortier thinks that Marat might have an axe to grind against him because he presided over the train games that killed both of Marat's Marat's brothers. older brothers, right. Yeah. So he thinks that Marat might be looking for payback, and he also is planning that, that he may be planning to make Marat watch the entertainment. Yes, that seems to maybe. I guess be that the was case. in an end note. And this whole and Marat as double or triple agent, everyone knows what he's doing, too. Mm-hmm. That Marat has told steeply about the plan to force Quebec to secede. Right. So the Office of Unspecified Services knows, and Marat knows that Fortier may have deliberately like may have allowed that to happen, right? Right, because he want they want to frighten gentle. Right. So then 
we have uh, another teeth dream here. Mm-hmm. Joelle has this dream that, that Don Gately is working on her teeth. It's quite an image. I don't have a lot to say about it. I really do like the line, though. Uh, these are teeth that have been up to things she hasn't known about. Oh, yes. yes. Mm. Spooky. Am I reading it correctly that she has basically shark teeth? Yeah, like rows of canine teeth. It That's sounds her dream, like shark right? teeth. In her dream. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Although just in her dream, in not life. in real life. Although it would be a good reason to wear that veil. It would, it would. be. It would be a really yeah. good reason. And who knows? People have all kinds of weird physical things going on with them. It's so. True. You know, it's not totally out of the realm of possibility mm-hmm. <laughs> that she grew some extra rows of teeth and they're really right. sharp. So that's kind of a fun interlude. And then we're back to the AFR. I have this question, where did these copies come from? Like even beyond them being, like if they were traced back to Duplessis, if that's what brings the AFR to Antitois Entertainment, why did Duplessis have it and how like that's that's the this seems like the the thing that i keep bumping up against the thing that i don't understand and i'm not confident that i'll ever get to understand is how did this go from being on a single master cartridge in james o's editing suite to being duplicated and shown at like film festivals and mailed to people and either in Duplessis's well, house or at one of those cardboard stand-up displays? Like, how did that happen? Who did that? Well, the AFR believes, or Fortier suspects, that Oren had it, right? Oh, why? He suspects that Oren had the master because he would have had access to his father's stuff. Well, yes, and but they he wouldn't necessarily know Oren it was deadly. Well, I guess their point is, does he know it is? Because they mm-hmm. tend well, to blame. Well, n- yeah. They believe so, they believe that like that Oren knows about or has a master copy of the cassette, and that Duplessis might have gotten his copy from Oren, and also the copy that showed up in Berkeley. Right. Uh, but, also so, may so have come from Oren. There's all this speculation, though, about where the master is. I, somebody at some point had to know what it was. They had to know that it was deadly because otherwise they would have watched it while they I were think, copying it. I think they, that's and, why and they, they suspect to, Oren because he might have known. It's possible. I mean, knowing what we know about it. Oren, it seems very unlikely. But I guess from unlikely. their perspective, they might they might view him as as a potential culprit. Right. He just doesn't seem terribly mm-hmm. bright or right. maniacal or, enough like, like to not, say. Not, he doesn't seem particularly interested in his father's films. I don't see a motive for him making copies and distributing them. Mm-hmm. Like like somebody somebody had, and, unless it was something that James O did himself and put into motion before his suicide, which I suppose is possible. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Somebody had to do it. Somebody had to push record on the on the duplicating deck, or unless, and then unless Oren has some kind of wish to put his father in a bad light, and I I don't know. Like maybe, but but he there are so many things that he would have to know that we haven't heard about him knowing yet. He would right. have had to know that Infinite Jest five or four or whatever 
existed and that right. it was deadly to watch. He had to know that before he ever watched it or it would have killed him. And he had to know where the master was, how to make a dupe of the master, and why specifically would he have targeted the people that he targeted? Well, right. You know? And and we nothing that we there may be a lot to not admire about Oren and to find fault with about Oren, but he hasn't proven to be like bloodthirsty. I don't think he's in, yeah, he like killing murderous. people. He doesn't seem murderous, for instance. Right. Mm-hmm. right. He has other ways of hurting people, but not murdering them. Right. But they must, on the other hand, they must have some reason to suspect him. Perhaps just because... He's I mean, he was, one he was close to James O at the time that James O was making films. Yeah. It's like and him and Joel. They're also looking. They're looking Psychosis. very hard for Joel. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on the information they extracted from the unfortunate MIT right. radio engineer, which really spoils the slapstick funny quality of the scoop up on the hill it sure in does. public gardens to find out. Yeah. Well, we knew nothing good would happen to him, but it. Right. Kind of uh, but now they're that. they're making him, they've shown him the entertainment and they're making him cut off his fingers in order to watch it again right. and again. Right. They're doing research to see just how yeah. badly you want to watch it again. It what sounds very methodical and, and like it just hammers home that the AFR is not concerned about body counts. Like they, they, because no. they say they're doing this research and then they're going to have to repeat it with a variety of people to make sure that it holds true with other test subjects. Right. I mean, it makes sense that they're that way, that they don't worry about the body counts. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, you know, the jumping in front of the train. Yeah. Getting into the AFR, you have to not care. You have, you have right. to not care if you die. Right. So why would you care if others do? But they're getting really scary. I'm starting to be really afraid of them. And that's kind of where we leave things is like they're making plans for how to proceed. Um, but they're definitely like the gloves are coming off kind of at this point. Is Marat at the Antitois joke shop while all this is going yes, on? Yes, I believe he, he is. He is actually there. I think so. So he made it off the yeah. ledge. Yes. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Why did he have the gun on his lap? Because he's an AFR guy. They always have oh. a gun or a weapon oh, of some okay. kind. Okay. Just mm-hmm. in case. They probably always have their finger wrapped around the trigger of a gun with the safety off. An, I think that's just a, who they are. An AFR guy. An AFR lad. He's an FLQ. Yeah. A chum. <laughs> <laughs> so, the other, like it said that they, you know, when they tortured the Antitois brothers and grilled them about the master, it said that they had mostly believed them when they denied having a master cassette, right. but they killed them anyway. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, because they would have only complicated things if they'd stayed alive. Yeah. It's, they're much less complicated when they're wrapped in plastic in the back room. Right. Wait, they're what? They're wrapped in plastic. Thank you. And so now we're filled with the horror of them deciding that they're going to have to go the di- indirect route now. Focus on the indirect right. route. Right. Uh, and they Which say is, that James O'Connor... It's O'Co- a risk. The colleagues and family are already under continued surveillance and that they have spies in ETA. They do say yeah. that. They I'm say curious they have an employee, an employee of ETA and so who a do you think Canadian an Canadian instructor at ETA and a student. I mean it could oh. be Putrin Court. I mean and John, I Wayne. Know of other, and John Wayne. 
Yeah, I guess, I don't know of other Canadian instructors at ETA. <laughs> and it's I guess probably we don't know one of other... those really random characters, and we're just like, oh, yes. <laughs> Doesn't it say that there are three? An employee at ETA has been recruited and joined the Canadian instructor and student already inside. So there's three. Oh, so there's Canadian a instructor, student, and an Do you employee. think it's someone who... Do you think mm. it's it's like janitorial maybe, staff, like someone maybe from... Maybe it's somebody from Enid House. Oh, yeah. Maybe. That would be a real windfall for the AFR, because that would get them access to ETA, and it would also find Joelle for them. Right. Yeah. So one of those people could have been digging in the tunnels. It's possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could have been... Was it Ruth Van Cleve who we saw with, like, a bulging backpack looking sort of frightened? I thought she was the one who picked up, like, tissues off the floor in offices and ran away with them. Yeah, but then later, yeah. Yeah. At, at, the dinner, at the dinner scene, they see her walking home, and there's the thing about oh. her having a bulging backpack and right. how, yeah. how right. janitorial workers that. did dumpster diving sometimes. Right, right. yeah. And one of them, could sh- they could have gotten into the tunnels, any of those three. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's ominous. It does not bode well for events unfolding in the future at ETA. Mm-hmm. And there's a tennis match coming up with a Quebec oh, right. team, yeah, tennis and they team say that's that, going to be at that, ETA. That the uh, the AFR would have an easier time capitalizing on that if they had anyone in the organization who was any good at tennis. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Or had legs, I think. Or had that. legs, yeah. But yeah, I would imagine that sparks will fly during that, mm-hmm. that meet. So then we're back with uh, Lens one last time here yeah. in this reading. Uh, he did indeed steal the shopping bags and is now like running through alleys. And there's this kind of funny thing where he's like trying to perform class hierarchy with these these kids who are smoking crack in the alley. Like he's he's trying to look as dignified as possible as he walks past them and... Mm-hmm. They're not really having it. No, they're not. Am I correct in thinking that this is the exact same alleyway that poor Tony is in right now? It we could shoot. Well, a tiny crash off somewhere south down the network of alleys was actually poor Tony Krause rolling in the steel waste barrel that tripped up Ruth Van Cleve. Yeah, I don't think they're on the same block, but I think that they are very close to it. They're probably within a, a block or two of each other. So they're going to okay. all crash together at at the doorway something to the t- Antitois When, when poor Tony shop. gets to Antitois Entertainment, something terrible is going to happen, and who knows who all will be caught in the crossfire. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You take much joy in that. You seem gleeful. I'm just happy mm-hmm. when things happen in this book. You know, sometimes <laughs> sometimes we read a hundred pages and it's all backstory, and that's right. fine. Right. But here's like, there's chase <laughs> scenes. I was chase so excited scenes, yeah. to see chase scenes. Chase scenes, <laughs> yeah. But that's it for our reading. Do we have yeah. other things to say about any of this? Just the dread. The dread Just is the building. Just the dread. It's a lot dread. of dread. Yeah. And the wondering who are the spies in ETA. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More things to dread. Woohoo. Yeah. <laughs> Add it to the dread board. Oh, why didn't we do that? <laughs> we should have. If we, we should have done ahead, a dread board. Made a Next dread time, board. right? Next yeah. time. I'm not reading this again. I don't think I'll again. ever read this book again. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm glad that I'm reading it a second time. I don't think I'll ever need to read it a third time. Yes. Life is I too short. I agree. I'm having a lot of fun <laughs> reading it with y'all. Um, yeah, well, I don't think you. I would have read it again by myself. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> mm. If you'd like to get in touch with us for any reason, you can send a message to smallcleverpod at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at smallcleverpod. Does anyone have anything they'd like to announce or plug? My website is still briannacrats.com, and you can read old things that I wrote and look at the baby blanket that I made for a friend. It's Aww. very pretty. My Instagram account is still at CardboardVV, where you can look at paintings that I paint. Uh, my website is agingrick.com, and I'm also on Instagram at CoffeeStopFix. And I have continued to resist having any kind of online presence. <laughs> You're much stronger than us. <laughs> Next time we'll be talking about pages 729 to 747. Our music is by David Nichols. You can check out his newsletter, The Land of Random, on Substack. Thanks for listening, and be careful out there. The most fearsome surveillance gets carried out by unlikely-looking people that follow you by walking in front of you with small mirrors in their glasses temples or elaborate systems of cellular communications for reporting to the command center, or else also by helicopters, also that fly too high to see, hovering the tiny chop of their rotors disguised as your own drumming heart. So how many students do you have in that class? I've got 17 or 18 in that class. I'm actually over capacity in my cinematography class. I've got 20 or 21 because I let in a couple waitlisted people. It was all people that I liked who wanted to get in. So that gave me It does make a difference. Is that nepotism? Nah, it's just favoritism. Just plain favoritism. (laughs)